Are you looking for a good book? Then let's talk. Books and Authors is the book show on Futures Television. We bring you the best authors on a variety of genres. There are so many great books out there, so where do we start? Leave the digging for us. You can watch Books and Authors every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. Hello and welcome to Books and Authors, the book show on Futures Television and on Radio Futures. I'm Rom Gaioso, your host. Today, we're talking about the viral underclass, the human toll when inequality and disease collide. Dr. Stephen Thrash's latest book. First and foremost, thank you so much for your being here with me and my guest today. I know your time is very important. I am the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. Remember, if you're watching this show via Futures Television, the home of the future on television, or listening to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on radio, you too can be part of the conversation. This show airs on television every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. And this show broadcasts via Radio Futures daily, also at 2 p.m. Pacific. If you're not watching us live, please join us in our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to chat about the topic of the day. So let me say a few words about our guest today. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Thrasher. He holds an inaugural Daniel H. Renberg Chair at Northwestern University Medill School, the first journalism professorship in the world created to focus on LGBTQ research. He is also a faculty member of Northwestern's Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Wellbeing. His writing has been widely published by the New York Times, The Guardian, Nation, Journal of American History, Squire, BuzzFeed News, and Scientific American. A recipient of grants from the Ford and Sloan Foundations, Dr. Thresher was named one of the 100 most influential and impactful people of 2019 by Out Magazine. He holds a PhD in American Studies and divides his time between Chicago and New York. The Vital Underclass is his first book. Well, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Thresher to the show. Dr. Thresher, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here with me and the audience today. Uh, what a beautiful book. I don't know if, if beautiful is the word I should use, uh, but as an economist, uh, I'm used to uh, people hiding behind statistics and figures and, and indicators. And you did such a beautiful job at putting people's names and faces and stories to the crude reality that, that we live. So uh, I want to start a little bit uh, with your um, with your background. You have been studying viruses and pandemics for quite some time, actually since HIV/AIDS, and you found some commonalities across those viral infections. Starting with the same people are affected anytime we have a pandemic, the most vulnerable. Can you explain what happens? Uh, certainly, and, and thanks so much for having me and for those uh, very kind words. Uh, I appreciate you saying the book is beautiful. I, I tried to do the best I could craft-wise, but I certainly found the lives of the people that I got to write about um, extremely beautiful and touching, and I'm so glad that I get to share a bit about their lives with a wider audience. I've been studying viruses for about 12 years now. I do remember I was a small child when the HIV epidemic began, the, the AIDS pandemic began, uh, but I've been studying HIV for about 12 years and I really got into it in some depth when I was writing about when and how it's criminalized uh, when people are prosecuted and, and sent to prison for 
the transmission of HIV. And I started to see patterns when I was studying a case about HIV transmission and criminalization uh, near St. Louis in 2014, in the beginning of that year. And then I returned to study and report on the police killing of Michael Brown uh, in August and September of that year. And I found that there was a high rate of HIV and AIDS in that area as well. And I started to see that there was a lot of overlap between where you find HIV cases, where you find cases that move on to AIDS diagnoses and AIDS death, uh, and also when you move on, and then also where you find criminalized blackness and, and police brutality. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic began, I started to see that the same maps were coming into focus, that the places in St. Louis, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, um, where you were still seeing AIDS cases and AIDS deaths were also the places where you were initially seeing uh, COVID cases and COVID deaths. And this struck me initially as somewhat unusual because these are very, very different viruses with different properties, they behave differently, they transmit differently, and yet they were geographically and economically affecting very similar populations. Um, and that's when I started thinking through a theory of the viral underclass, a, a phrase I'd come across from an activist named Sean Strube, um, but I really started to understand it as an analytic that could be more broadly applied across um, various viruses, not just HIV, as Sean had originally used it. Wow. Um, amazing. Uh, now, um, let's talk a little bit about the impact of pandemics on people, which is really, you know, why we study economics as an economist. I'm, I'm most interested in those. So what happens to people? And you mentioned getting infected with a virus moves people down a class. Mm -hmm. Is the impact of pandemics so great? It certainly is. Uh, and that's a particular dynamic in the United States. I mean, I find that the way I, I think of a viral underclass being created through 12 different social vectors, and many of those happen around the world. But a particular way this happens in the United States is that becoming sick with a virus uh, makes you likely to move down the, the class ladder economically. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why that happens here. Primarily, it's because we have no national health care system. We don't have universal health care. We've had fits and starts of it. You know, of course, there's Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, and during the first year and a half, two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, people could just show up at lots of places and get vaccinated, but even that's getting moved into the private market. Um, but unlike a country like England with a national health service, when a, a epidemic you know, happens in the UK, people go, you know, they're able to get healthcare through the NHS. Sometimes it may take a while, but they're able to get that care, but they're never going to leave with a bill that's debilitating. Um, and the, in the United States, that is not the case. So if you become infected with HIV or uh, if you become infected with HIV, even though there, there's government support for you, there's all kinds of ways that you could end up indebted. Um, similarly with, you know, COVID-19, we've stopped paying for uh, we stopped paying for treatment and testing for people who don't have insurance. And so someone who has a COVID-19 diagnosis now who's uninsured could end up leaving a hospital with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Similarly, with the monkeypox epidemic, which I've been doing research on and activism around this summer, uh, you know, someone becomes infected with monkeypox and their local health department will mandate them to a two, four or six week quarantine without any paid uh, any paid time off. And so when we don't have paid time off, um, when the government can mandate that you have to stay home and not earn any money, but the government's also not 
giving you money to survive, that's putting people in a position where they're going to be destroyed economically. I mean, the average American does not have $400 for a medical emergency. And if you are to be uh, cut off from a month's savings or six weeks or a month's earnings or six weeks of earnings, uh, it becomes really impossible to be able to stay afloat economically. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why in the U.S. in particular, if one is to become infected with hepatitis, HIV, uh, COVID, uh, monkeypox, any, any of these viruses, even influenza, you could very easily be put in a position where you are um, struggling economically and where the process of becoming infected makes you earn less money, makes you more likely to become short or long-term disabled, and that that will have a, a corresponding deleterious effect on your economic life. And the harm to your economic life and we know this quite clearly, you know, taking on lots of debt, becoming evicted, that also has an effect on people's physical health. And so that puts people into a uh, swirling cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you know, to be honest with you, I was, I was doing my homework uh, for your interview and I saw your work on the monkeypox um, pandemic that, that we're going through. And you made a specific comment in terms of, you know, uh, diseases that affect a certain class of people. Usually uh, we don't have access to treatment. So I tried to get a vaccine for a monkeypox. Uh, I'm in Phoenix. I could find vaccine for tetanus, for diphtheria, for, you know, if I get the, uh, the bug that eats flesh. But I could not find a dose for the <laughs> monkeypox vaccine. Uh, except for one place that actually caters uh, for HIV AIDS. It's the only place in the town of 4 million people. So people who are actually looking uh, for vaccination, for prophylaxis, uh, for treatment uh, before they get infected, they can't find it. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so why is it uh, that we still believe that uh, people, certain people can get sick and others cannot? How does that work? Well, the, the monkeypox, and I'll probably write a new chapter for the paperback edition of my book about how, unfortunately, the monkeypox epidemic illustrated how little had been learned from COVID at the level of the government. I think that amongst the populace and certainly amongst um, community activists, a lot had been learned. And, and when monkeypox cases started to show up uh, outside of about 10, 12 countries where they had been endemic, in West Africa, and the virus started showing a very, very different uh, mode of transmission. Primarily, it happened previously through close contact. It mutated and it started to move through sexual contact primarily. Many of us started to say, all right, we, you know, we need to get ready. We're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it in Canada. Uh, lots of uh, things were starting to happen for Gay Pride Month. Uh, the, you know, the population where it was moving was gathering in places. We need to get out ahead of this and start distributing vaccine. And it took the U.S. government a very long time to kick in. And as you are illustrating, and I've heard a similar story to yours, unfortunately, from various places around the country, there are lots of localities in the country where you simply cannot get it still. Uh, the health systems that existed for decades around HIV and AIDS in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, were relatively well prepared at the level of distribution to start getting the vaccine out, but the federal government simply didn't get it to them in time. And so we've had now, you know, 35, 40,000 cases in the U.S. when we could have knocked this out much sooner. And as you're pointing out, there are lots of places where you still can't get it. Um, and so it's it's really frustrating that even when we understand where a, you know a virus is moving, it was overwhelmingly moving among men who have sex with men. 
where we know that there is technology for it. There was a vaccine, but it was only being made in one country um, outside of the United States. We're still having real trouble getting that out there. And part of the reason is because we just move so much from emergency to disaster and then to inaction in the United States. I was appalled that in these midterm elections, uh, COVID was a non-issue. It was a non-issue for Democrats. It was not an issue for Republicans. I think 830,000 people have, have died of COVID since the last election, 650,000 under President Biden, 12,000 just in the last month. And it was a complete non-issue that just wasn't talked about whatsoever. And so one of the questions, you know, one of the things that you're bringing up is the lack of infrastructure and planning that, that we have not taken up out of this pandemic. For instance, we were at a point where we were distributing 4.2, 4.3 million COVID vaccines a day at the height of our distribution, which was really impressive. Right now we're getting out 400,000 to 500,000 boosters, only about 10% of that. That's because the infrastructure has just been dismantled. You know, we could have learned from COVID, maybe not 4 million a day, but let's put into uh, into place where we can get out a million, 2 million, 3 million shots a day. We can give those out as boosters when they need to be updated. Excuse me, that same apparatus could be used to get out flu vaccines, uh, that same apparatus could be used to get out monkeypox or meningitis or, you know, various things that, that flare up around the country in a standing system that has a national infrastructure with local people ready to get it out. And instead, it's just been pulled apart and we're just kind of sitting as waiting ducks for the next epidemic, even in, you know, moments now where we know that there is monkeypox still circulating. Um, and I've heard, I'm, I'm so sad to hear that this was your experience in Arizona, because I've heard that from various places in the country. It seems like, you know, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, LA, DC, you can get this vaccine relatively easily now after months of it being quite difficult to do so. It took me about four months to, to be able to get my second dose. Um, but then other parts of the country, it just simply is not available. Um, and that's a real problem that we that we're not spending money on infrastructure and looking forward on what we need to do with uh, various pathogens as they come into our knowledge. And it's not as if it's a surprise. I saw your um, explanation of the doctor in Nigeria and how how he's been you know yelling and screaming about, about this for, for the longest. So that it's not really a surprise. It's just that we decided that we're not going to get prepared for it. Well, also, no. let's talk yeah, a yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's, yeah, it is not a surprise and it's very disappointing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the book and the book structure is in 12 chapters and those are the exact 12 factors that create the conditions for unequal viral transmission. So uh, I want to talk a little bit in general about the, those, those 12 factors and then what I would like to do is to deep dive in a couple of them. So why did you select those 12? Um, it was after a long process of trying to think very deeply about why is it that, I mean, my, my starting point was HIV behaves so differently from SARS-CoV-2, uh, and why is it that, you know, similar people are are getting this virus? And, and it's not exactly a one-to-one -one population. I mean, as I said, when I first saw the maps coming into focus of who was getting it, it was the same poor black neighborhoods in St. Louis County, in New York, where I was at the time, where Lorena Borjas was the first person in my outer social circle to, to die of COVID. Um, you could see very clearly, oh, it's happening in the, the neighborhoods in New York where they're still getting AIDS. And, and very quick, one of the, the earliest things I could tell was, oh, these are the places where people are going in and out of carceral structures. Like that's a, that's a very shared common trait um, between COVID and, and AIDS. Cases of HIV and AIDS, uh, 
being close to the prison system is well established, even though the HIV virus is relatively uh, inefficient and relatively difficult to transmit, but it um, still comes up a lot in populations who've been incarcerated. And then of course the uh, SARS-CoV virus is extremely casually transmitted and is easily, easily transmitted uh, in carceral settings. And so I was seeing that that was a shared characteristic. One of the population differences initially that, that seemed different was HIV and AIDS in its early years was very much concentrated amongst younger men in their 20s and 30s. Um, actually, right now, a, a population where it's rising slightly are older people because we tend to assume that older people don't use injection drugs or don't have sex lives. And of course they do. Um, and they are not encouraged to protect themselves accordingly when they do. So we're actually seeing some rise in the United States and in, in HIV amongst elder populations. Um, but with COVID, we saw it was very much harming uh, people in nursing homes as well, initially in, in the first waves and, and again now. And so I started to actually understand that that was a vector of how they were disposable, um, even though the, the demographic ages are different for elderly people in the present and gay men in the 1980s. These are both populations that were imagined to be disposable, to be not particularly useful to capital, not reproductive, um, and potentially not uh, not positioned to be bringing in a lot of value through their labor. Uh, and so the Reagan administration kind of wrote them off and the Trump administration wrote them off. Uh, and that was a shared characteristic between them. Um, and I started seeing, you know, some of them were somewhat obvious to me, racism, uh, ableism, I dealt with much more so in this, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the law itself, thinking through critical race theory and the way that law produces different health outcomes. Uh, I initially thought it was gonna be eight, then it was 10. My publisher was very kind in letting me write about 12. Um, and of course there are other ways that people can think about this, but I hope that the theory of the viral underclass and the way that I'm showing that these different social vectors are going to produce different health outcomes. You could look at you know, things other than communicable diseases or viruses, things like heart disease, um, but I find viruses you know, very illustrative for understanding how these things happen. It's certainly, they've been a big part of my work. Um, they also show us how connected we are and viruses, they destroy the myth that we're all you know, individual actors that have no connection to one another. The, the genetic material, the biological material from viruses are continuously connecting us to one another and actually changing our DNA and our RNA uh, inside of us. Um, and so I thought that these 12 vectors would help people you know, understand the ways that our relationship to animals, our relationship to ableism, the way that racism plays out in our society, the way that white people who might actually think that they are immune to these things are not as immune as they might think. These are all vectors that can show us how we are connected to one another. And if we deal with them, and if we try to deal with them in an interdependent, in an interdependent manner through which we are um, connecting to one another, that can not only help create better outcomes for viruses, uh, better health outcomes in general for human beings, it can help us have a better relation to one another and to the planet. Um, and so that's kind of how I thought through the, the 12 vectors. Okay, let's speak on, on a couple of them. So let's talk a little bit about crossing borders. And you explain migrants are particularly vulnerable in a pandemic situation. Uh, I was particularly moved by Lorena's story. Um, why are migrant communities hit so hard? What is it about them that uh, we tend to write them off so quickly? Well, borders and who and what moves across them are fictions. And like all fictions, there's there's interesting things about them. 
Um, they do reveal some truths, but they're still ultimately fictions. Uh, and so the United States imagines itself as this uh, is this sealed entity through which nothing moves across its borders. It's, it's not true. Um, and viruses become both a big part of that fiction and an excuse for it. And I write in the book about how many people think that Guantanamo Bay, and I was actually just with the, um, the historian and sociologist of torture, Lisa Hajar, last night at, at an event who, who documents the history of Guantanamo Bay. Many Americans think that Guantanamo Bay began uh, being used as a site of infinite detention with uh, after 9-11, that that's where we were sending uh, alleged terrorists. But actually, it was activated about a decade before when Haitians were trying to flee the coup and trying to get to the United States, the Coast Guard intercepted them and the American government couldn't send them back to Haiti. They did not want them to come to Florida uh, to get uh, asylum refugee claims. And so they sent them to Guantanamo Bay where they were arguing that they could control them without having them have access to US law. And while they were there, they tested everybody for HIV and they sterilized everybody with HIV. And that's a really dramatic but appropriate um, illustration of the ways that we imagine that there was no HIV inside of the country. For decades, the US did not let people with HIV into the United States. Um, and we acted like there wasn't HIV inside the country, even though among some of our populations, you know, we have the highest rate of HIV of, of anyone in the world. And so migrants' bodies, the people who are trying to migrate, become blamed for these viruses, and that puts them in situations where they are more likely to become infected with viruses. Even today, in a two almost two years into the Biden administration, the US government is still using Title 42 and saying we must expel migrants in an expedited fashion because they carry disease and they're driving the COVID-19 pandemic. All of this is false. You know, you, the U.S. has pretty consistently had the highest rate of COVID of, of any country in the world uh, and had one of the highest, had the highest rate of death of any country in the world. Um, the virus is moving quite freely inside of our borders, and there are very few mitigations at the national level around this virus. But the federal government is still de deporting Haitians on and uh, people from other countries on an expedited basis, putting them in ICE detention facilities where they're more likely to become infected. Um, and they're preparing to send Haitians to Guantanamo Bay to kind of put a circle on the history there. And so Lorena Borjas was um, the first person in my outer social circle who died of COVID. I had only met her once, but she was very close to many friends of mine. Uh, she was the mother of the, of the trans Latinx community in Queens and in New York City in many ways. She lived with HIV herself. She'd been a migrant who had uh, migrated from Mexico, wanted to come to the United States to be able to get surgery and live as a woman. And all of that put her in really dangerous conditions. She was trafficked. Um, she became addicted to drugs. Trying to get access as a person without documents to healthcare is extremely dangerous. So she ended up becoming HIV positive. Um, and there are all these things for migrants that you know that put their bodies in positions where they are likely, to, much more likely to become infected with hepatitis, HIV, uh, any kind of virus that 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 tracks along lines of things that need syringes and needles um, to deliver healthcare. Um, and then eventually she became this really powerhouse of an activist who tried to help all other trans and migrant people as much as she could. She stood out in the street at night, handing out condoms, handing out sterile syringes, handing out food. She was most known for any time a trans uh, person, particularly a, a Spanish girl, as she called them, uh, was arrested and ended up in court. She would show up in the court 
raise money to get bail for the person. And then even if she didn't know them, just go to court and say, Your Honor, this person has a community. We're going to be there for her and we will make sure that you know she's taken care of and comes back for her court date. Uh, and so she did this really, really important work to try to help other trans people because she knew and, and undocumented people that being in jail was very dangerous for COVID, for HIV, for any number, you know, influenza, for any number of things. Um, and people who don't have access to healthcare, who have to live in the shadows because they're undocumented, makes it much more likely that they're going to get health care that's going to harm them. Something very similar and dangerous is happening right now with trans health and LGBT health in a number of states, including Arkansas and Florida, Texas, where the government is saying, you know, you cannot get health care if you are trans. Um, and so that drives people who could be getting their hormones and their medications under the supervision of a doctor, getting sterile treatment and sterile syringes, it makes them find that healthcare on the contraband market, and it makes it much more likely that they're going to be uh, live with hepatitis and HIV and things of that nature. Um, but that is a condition that all undocumented people and many migrant people have faced uh, for decades or centuries, that they're they're forced to live in the shadows, even if they're doing the essential work that kept us alive and fed during this pandemic, while they themselves do not have access to medication uh, and treatment that will allow their bodies to be of health, as healthy as they could be. Well, living in, in a border state, we certainly deal with a lot of issues in terms of migration. But one of the images that uh, stayed with me because it was shocking was the former first lady when she visited one of the private, you know, private uh, prisons when we started separating children from, from their parents, she wore a jacket that read, <laughs> I don't care. And uh, here in Arizona, we were shocked. I said, oh my gosh, how is it, you know, of someone in a position of authority uh, would say that about a human being? It's uh, scary. Uh, so I wanted to talk about another story that you mentioned in your book. So I wanted to transition to austerity. And in the austerity chapter, you illustrate the story of an AIDS activist in Greece. And if I understood the story correctly, what happened there was with the austerity, so with the economic crisis, we can no longer afford uh, to uh, give people uh, access to health. But isn't that counterintuitive? When people need the most, we remove the social net? How does that work? Yeah, so for me, that part of the book um, where I write about the activist uh, Zach Kostopoulos was one of the most eye-opening for me because I was um, I had a writing fellowship while I was doing my dissertation to work in Greece, and I, I hoped that I would have a break from a lot of the police violence that I was writing about and the racism. And then shortly after I arrived, a young man was killed by a mob that kicked him to death and included four police officers and he turned out to be the most prominent HIV activist and queer activist in the country. His name was Zach Kostopoulos. Um, and that helped me understand that even though so much of my research at that time had been about race and systemic racism, and that's very important, I write about that in the book too, um, but this was happening outside the context of black-white uh, race relations in the United States, kind of outside of the history of the transatlantic slave trade, very much happening amongst white people in Europe. Um, and what I found there was something similar to what you could also see in Thatcherite England or under Reaganism, where austerity, where the government is pulling money from social services and redistributing upwards, um, is having a deleterious and horrible effect on the bodies of people who live in those countries. Um, Zach became HIV positive 
in a period of time where Greece had a, a large upswing in HIV cases. Uh, and Greece had had very successful public health uh, campaigns and procedures that were keeping HIV at low levels because they were going out and distributing sterile syringes to people who were suffering from addiction, uh, people who used heroin and, and other drugs that, that require syringes. Um, and it was very successful and it wasn't particularly expensive. But when the Greek government went into its austerity phase, when they had their crash a couple years out of the United States and the EU came in and took over and the IMF and they said, you must you know, strip all your social services. You must have a very bare bones government that doesn't have much social support. HIV cases went up 3,000% in just four years. And it was during that time that Zach became HIV positive. It was also during that time that Greece started spending a lot more on policing. And so as people didn't have access to healthcare, food, housing, things like that, quite like in the United States, the money went to policing instead. And what I'm writing about in the book is that in those moves, the state is essentially opening up the bodies of people to viruses and to pathogens. Um, it was a very, very similar story, kind of looking at the way that Zach became infected, the money went to policing, HIV rates were going up in the country, and, you know, addiction was going up. It was quite similar to what was and is happening in about 300 counties around the U.S. where there's almost no, uh, there's very, very little HIV surveillance um, in Appalachia in the South. Uh, counties that have large uh, populations of white people who are poor. And as deindustrialization sets in, as mills close and as mines close, uh, addiction is going up, uh, social services are going down. And then when HIV or hepatitis enter into a community, they will spread very quickly because not only has the healthcare around that been dismantled, but the entire infrastructure has been dismantled for how to have surveillance about what's going on. Um, I really, really worry that one of the byproducts of the Dobbs decision, in addition to what it's done around queer health and trans health, is that, of course, it has forced the closure of many uh, abortion clinics and healthcare facilities that provided abortions. Um, and the fastest HIV outbreak in the history of the United States, which I write in the book in relation to Zach and Greece, happened in Indiana in 2014, 2015. And the reason why it moved so quickly was because then Governor Mike Pence uh, of Indiana, long before the outbreak, had essentially run all the HIV providers out of the state. And, and there was no uh, HIV, there was not only no um, uh, very, very low care for people living with HIV, almost no care for people who needed abortions, but there was no surveillance. The places that did abortions also tested for HIV and looked out for it and dealt with it when they found it. Um, and so I think about 80 abortion clinics have closed in, in several states since the Dobb decision. And not only is that not allowing people to get abortion health care, it's also probably obliterated these surveillance networks around sexually transmitted infections. Um, and so that's a byproduct, not just of homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny, but whenever these governments come in and they enact austerity and they say, you don't need, not only do you not need housing, but you don't need clinics to give people health care, it really opens up um, large parts of the population to the movement of these viruses, to the people who initially get them, but to the people that they also have sex with and uh, perhaps use recreational drugs with too. I hear you. Uh, so um, 
Let's talk a little bit about historical inequalities. Um, it seems that the data shows black and brown communities were hit disproportionately more than other communities. Is racism still so endemic? We have not yet been able to build fairness into our society. How does that work? It does. And I've been in conversation with uh, two times now on my book tour. I've been very blessed to, to do events with uh, the author, Linda Villarosa, who wrote a beautiful book called Under the Skin. She's also a writer for the New York Times Magazine. And one of the things that's come up in our conversations are the ways that the classic question, does race, you know, does race or class uh, beat each other out? You know, is race more important than class? Is class more important than race? And there are certain times, and I think it's the reason why I lead with racism as the first vector that I that I deal with in the viral underclass, has this enormous role in our society and what we call the predeterminants of health or the social determinants of health. Linda is writing mostly in the register of, um, although she's written about HIV a lot too, but in her book, she's writing primarily about uh, infant mortality and maternal mortality. Uh, and one might think that, you know, a rich and upper middle class, college educated, professional class black woman or a very wealthy black woman uh, would have a better outcome with birth and so would their child. Uh, but that's actually not the case. You know, a, a black woman with a doctorate is going to have more likelihood of dying in childbirth and her child's going to have more likelihood of dying in childbirth or severe health problems uh, than a white woman who did not finish high school. And actually, the, high, the more education Black women get around maternity, the more likely they're going to have bad health outcomes. So there are times where race is not addressed. It, it can be actually exacerbated by education and economic success. Um, well, the, you know, even Jackson, right? When you look at Jackson, mm -hmm. Mississippi, an area predominantly Black, they do not have clean water. Right, in the United right. States. Right. That's scary. It's extremely scary. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways I came into the work that I do was one, I was writing about this young black gay man who named Michael Johnson, who was arrested for HIV transmission. He was facing life in prison. He eventually got sentenced to 30 years in prison. We got him out after about six, about 25 years early. Um, but he spent most of his 20s in prison. Excuse me. And when I started looking into the criminalization of HIV, I found that you know, one, the laws don't work, two, they're a direct barrier to getting you know, to stigma and to getting people tested and treated. You know, we want people whenever they're sick to be able to come forward safely for their health, but also to stem the transmission of the virus. And you know, these laws make it more likely the virus will keep moving. Um, but also everywhere they're applied in the world, they're overwhelmingly applied to black men. In Canada, 3% of the population is uh, black, but the majority of the HIV trans the HIV prosecutions are against black people. And so is the incarcerated community, right? Disproportionately yes. black yes. and brown. Yes. yes, very, very much so. Um, and so, um, you know, that's just one, that's kind of how I came to this work. Um, but the statistic that chilled me the most, and this was a couple of years into writing about Michael Johnson, was that one in every two black gay men are projected to become HIV positive in our lifetime. This research is a few years old. I'm hoping that the models will be adjusted positively, but who knows? But the last time this was done, you know, one in every two of us are projected to become HIV positive. And that's not because black men have uh, more sex with more partners than other people. We actually have fewer sex partners than other gay men. Uh, it's also not because of 
increased recreational drug use. We actually use recreational drugs at, as, at a lower level than white gay men. It's because of all these social determinants of health. Um, black men, as you're saying, are more likely to be incarcerated. Incarceration is an enormous predictor of who becomes HIV positive and COVID positive. Uh, black homelessness is off the charts in the United States. That That's largely increased during the Clinton administration uh, and, and the policies that Bill Clinton did with welfare and, and crime that drastically increased black homelessness. Homelessness is probably the biggest indicator of who's going to become HIV positive. Um, and then also there are very effective drugs for HIV. They became uh, available in 1996, but they largely did not become available to black people. White people got them relatively quickly and the viral load amongst white people came down. Um, but black people didn't get them. And so that's where the virus went. That's where it moved and reproduced. It reproduced in the bodies of black people, in jails, uh, in homeless shelters. And that became a predictive reason of why there's such a higher rate of HIV. Um, and so I think that a, a really chilling takeaway for me in my research is that a technological solution is not going to necessarily make things better unless you have explicitly anti-racist policies that go along with it. The rate of HIV and AIDS in 1995, a year before there were any medicine, um, compared to 2015, about 20 years after there's medicine, the rate of HIV and AIDS for white people never got as high in before there was medicine as it was for Black people 20 years after there's medicine. 20 years after there's medicine, the rate of AIDS amongst Black people is still higher than it ever was for white people before there were drugs. So like the drugs themselves are not going to solve these disparities. Similarly with COVID, we have vaccines, we have medication, they're not equally being distributed. And factors like who gets paid time off, who can work from home make a big difference in how people can rest and how much viruses will transmit through their communities. Um, so in many ways, our society is still set up at many levels to create these health disparities, regardless of what virus it is that's coming forward. And with monkeypox, we're seeing this very much too. Uh, it's almost entirely amongst the men who have sex with men community in the United States. Uh, but within that, it's very, very much concentrated amongst black and brown men. And we saw pretty early on that even though white men were a minority of who was getting it, they were vastly a majority of who got the vaccine. And that's still the case now. White men are, are getting vaccinated uh, in cities other than where you live, uh, you know, at, at high rates. And, um, and you can look at states like New York, Georgia, North Carolina, where the virus is moving pr predominantly amongst black and brown men. Um, and yet the majority of the vaccines are going to white men. And as long as those disparities go on, that guarantees a disparate rate of viral transmission. Yeah, so I don't like taking things out of context, but you had so many important quotes in your book, and I'm just going to read one of them. And you said social determinants place people in the path of the viruses and make their bodies less likely to be able to defend them. And I said, oh my gosh, this is a structural factor. It has nothing to do with you know anything that we can prevent or work on. This is it. You know, when we, by design, put people in, in peril or expose them, uh, that's really uh, depressing. Well, I don't, yeah, it is depressing. Um, I don't think that these are things we can't work on, but we have to have a very long range vision and not give up when they're not immediately fixed. So for example, something that I've dealt with a lot with 
monkeypox is um, a fear. And I understand the fear, even though I, I, I have a different idea about what should be done about it, of, you know, addressing that this is happening, you know, this was happening in the US, among, mostly among men who have sex with men. And there was a fear that saying that out loud would somehow make homophobia worse. And, and I disagree. I say that, you know, if you know where the virus is, it's not about identity. You sort of look at the activities that are involved and try to figure out how to give people the tools they need to stop the transmission. And if you see the community it's happening, that's where you put the resources. Homophobia is a problem, but homophobia is not going to be started or stopped at the level of trying to stop the transmission of this virus. Like that is a long-term problem that involves these horrible laws that are being passed um, and you know things that happen in the society that have to be dealt with that will take a long time. Similarly with Lorena Borjas, that she was this trans poor, you know, working poor, trans Latina, uh, in a working class neighborhood that had high rates of incarceration are lots of reasons why her body was put in the path of this virus. Her body was made weakened because she had HIV, because of the ways that uh, immigrants are mistreated and abused in this country. Uh, and as I, I write about briefly in the book too, she had very good reason to be afraid of the healthcare system. She had reasons to be afraid that she would be disrespected linguistically, that she would be mocked as a trans person. Um, and those things, the, because she'd been treated that way for decades, you know, are, are the reasons why her body would be less likely to survive the virus anyway. If you're, the, if, you're, if you're living in a body as a trans person uh, or a person of color in such a way that the healthcare system says, this, is, this system is not for you, and you don't see a doctor, you're more likely to have things built up that are going to make it um, harder for you to survive in the case of an emergency, which we saw a lot of in COVID. I wanted to uh, bring you to a contemporary topic. So I will share a story. So when I was a child, I heard my grandmother say, you know, you cannot possibly be happy if people around you are not happy. And that stayed with me for the longest. So I couldn't go, you know, you're a scholar. I couldn't go without asking you to comment on a very current topic. So we are days away from an international sports event, the World Soccer Cup, right? Which will take place in a country where homosexuality is considered a crime. So how exactly are we supposed to tell our fellow Americans we're celebrating a sports event in such an oppressive place? I find it really hard to do so. Um, there are a couple of scholars they follow, Jules Boykoff uh, and Ben Carrington, who, and also Dave Zirin, who write about Zirin, uh, you know, who write about sports in a way that it just feels like Groundhog Day. They lay out World Cup, Olympics, all of these events. They lay out extremely clearly Here's how labor is going to be exploited. Here's how migrants are going to be exploited. You know, the, here's how it's going to destroy the finances of the city and displace people, make work people homeless in, you know, Los Angeles or or uh, you know or Qatar or wherever it is. Um, and I think that we have to take that seriously. In the United States, I I try to teach my students in the United States when I'm teaching journalism students to always be writing about and thinking about labor. You know, we, we so often will write about stories from the point of view of a consumer. So perhaps the games are being set up in such a way that in this, you know, cooked part of the world that has incredible heat, maybe they will make the games, you know, in air conditioned arenas in ways that are comfortable. Maybe people will be enjoying them at home from a place of comfort, but we can't not address the laborers that like the, the journalism on what's happened to laborers building these arenas is very clear and how they've been exploited around the world. Um, and in terms of, you know, homosexuality, I've been, uh, I've been upset both with the world game countries, but also with 
President Biden going to Saudi Arabia. Um, and there was a lot made by the fact that he had hired this uh, black lesbian woman as his spokeswoman at the White House. Um, and she was very proud of being the first, you know, out lesbian person in this job. And she's spinning at the same time for why he's going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia beheaded five gay men uh, just two or three years ago. You know, they cut their heads off because uh, homosexuality is a capital crime. Um, and yet the United States will pretend like that's not true. I don't think they would have that same, you know, there are other countries through which the U.S. would make a big deal out of that. But because of economics, they sort of gloss over that with Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to be a killjoy uh, as a journalist or as a friend. But I think that it's important for us to say if you are enjoying the World Cup, um, or you're applauding President Biden going to one of these countries, you have to reckon with the fact that we know from the important work of journalists and activists that the workers are being exploited. And there are all kinds of people in these places who might give their lives just for being gay or who they are. And that's scary. And what is, is scarier is the fact that other voices are not raising. You know, we're supposed to, you know, be looking at things with an, a little bit of objectivity, right? And when we encounter such levels of, you know, unfairness being distributed, you know, around the globe, we're supposed to use our voices to call attention. Um, the media, uh, the schools, uh, the education system, all of us together, because I don't think we can possibly say we can enjoy such an event, right? when it, it goes against a good chunk of our people. It's just uh, uh, scary. Yeah. Dr. Thresher, uh, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I really loved your work and, and I hope you will continue yeah. and you uh, will bring uh, more and interesting stories and help us explore more of those topics because it, it was not the first pandemic. It sadly is not gonna be the last, but it can be different. And I think uh, through your work, I have learned that, yes, it can be different if we start paying attention and we start working towards a better future. Uh, thank you so much. I, I've greatly appreciated this conversation, your kind words. Thank you for your very thoughtful questions. Um, and I hope to keep in touch. Certainly will. Uh, and again, folks, uh, Dr. Stephen Trash's The Viral and the Class, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease. Acolyte is out. So please uh, take a moment uh, to visit the site. You're going to find the link to the book, Saladon Books, uh, here in the comment section of this video. Please uh, feel free to continue to submit your comments and questions on our YouTube page. I'll make sure to read them and present them to Dr. Thrasher. Any other questions you might have. If you're listening to us via podcast or watching this show as a recording via Futures Television or listening to the show on Radio Futures, you can also be a part of the conversation. Again, just visit our YouTube channel and leave a comment. Again, thank you so very much for your presence and participation in the show today. You can always reach out to the magazine, to me, the host via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. I hope to see you soon in another edition of Books and Authors. Thank you. Are you looking for a good book? Then let's talk. Books and Authors is the book show on Futures Television. We bring you the best authors on a variety of genres. There are so many great books out there, so where do we start? Leave the digging for us. You can watch books and authors every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific.